Welcome to another day through the wonderful Word of God, and I hope you've got your Bibles ready as we continue our journey through 2 Thessalonians. Today we're going to conclude our journey with chapter 3, but before we get into that, just a reminder to subscribe to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards, my Facebook page, Anthony P. Richards, my Instagram, AP Richards. Uh, use all, as many platforms as you possibly can. Uh, you know, it, it's harder work for me to do it across all three and it takes me way longer, but I do it because I'm just trying to reach as many people as possible. Uh, and, and, just, and I know that that helps you uh, like, comment, subscribe, and share to all those things. So please do whatever you can do to allow, all I'm just trying to do is rightly divide the word of truth. That's all I'm trying to do so that people can understand the, the true meaning of the word of God and so therefore apply it to their lives. Uh, as we continue and finish up this journey today through 2 Thessalonians, I encourage you, if you haven't already, to watch the previous videos uh, of the 2 Thessalonians, and if you can, watch 1 Thessalonians uh, before that, because it's a continuum. You can't really understand 2 Thessalonians at all without understanding 1 Thessalonians. If you just jump straight into it, it won't make any sense. So you kind of have to read them as two separate letters that were written as two separate responses to two separate issues, but they totally overlap. So let's get into the conclusion of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, where it starts off with uh, Paul. Paul is very clear. Love it how clear he was. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Paul constantly asked other Christians to pray for him. Did you know that? Romans 15, 30, 2 Corinthians 1, 11, Ephesians 6, 18 and 19, Philippians 1, 19, Colossians 4, 3, 1 Thessalonians 5, 25, Philemon 1, 22. Paul knew that the success of his ministry in some measure depended on the prayers of God's faithful people. And his great concern and what he asked, and he first asked the Thessalonian Christians to pray for, was that God's word would be free to do its work among others, even as it had done its work among the Thessalonians, just as it is with you. And Paul asked for prayer so that the word could run freely, without any hindrance. And his request makes us wonder, how often is the work of God's word hindered by the fact that we don't pray enough or we don't ask other people to pray for us as we're trying to do God's work. See, God has promised that his word would be free and perform its work. Uh, Isaiah 55, it shall not return to me void, but it will accomplish what I please and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. But as with many of God's promises, we are expected to take this promise in faith and in prayer to ask God to perform the promise for his glory, not for yours and for mine. Verse 2. Isn't that amazing just what's in one verse? <laughs> verse 2. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. He's talking here about those who wanted to hinder the work of the gospel. Paul wanted God to either deliver him from these people or change them into reasonable and godly people also. That's what his prayer was. Verse 3. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Even if not all men have faith, the Lord is always faithful. Uh, that's the basis of Paul's confidence in God's ability to establish and guard us from the evil one. See, God promise to basically keep Satan on a leash. And he's not going to allow any temptation to become 
too great for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And he won't allow Satan to do whatever he wants with us. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. Um, this is what we have to understand, that God is always sovereign and he's always faithful. Verse 4. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Command you. Yeah, so the, Paul's an apostle and he's commanding people to do things. I know when I'm a pastor and I command people to do things, they treat it like, oh, you know, I don't have to do what you say. Why, well, I don't have to do what you, you tell me to do. I can do whatever I like. Now, if I'm commanding you, I'm doing it in the uh, under the office of me being a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And unless I command you to do something that's unbiblical, immoral, or illegal, I expect you to do it. I don't have any problem with that. That's the calling that's on my life. And guess what? When I get to heaven, I have to stand before God and give an accountability, Hebrews 13, of whether I actually did it right or not for your soul. So I've got an eternal price to pay if I get it wrong. Okay, so this is what Paul's saying here. Uh, he's reminding them, you've done the things we commanded you and you're continuing to do them. He was very confident that they would follow through with God's word. Uh, and, and, and that's what shows God's work being done in you and me is, is, is when we are following the commands of what God wants us to do. Um, and, and that is you know, obeying his word. When I, as a pastor, quote unquote, command somebody, and obviously I don't do it in a military sense, but when I say to them, this is what you need to do, I'm doing that on the basis of what the word of God tells me that I need to tell somebody. I'm not processing it through my own lens of like, oh, that's what I think you should do. So no, that's what the word of God tells you. So therefore, that's what I'm commanding you. David Guzik, God doesn't just pour spiritual maturity and stability into us. He works it in us through our cooperation with his will, which is where spiritual authority then starts to play a role. Paul basically was saying to the church in Thessalonica, you are baby Christians, only just Christians for a few weeks, and you understand spiritual authority and spiritual commands better than people that have been Christ followers for years. Uh, unfortunately, still the truth today in, in the church that we live in right now. Um, now, he says, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. So, so what, what's he doing? What, 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 who, does G, who does Paul always point people to? Jesus. Uh, Paul wisely prayed for love and patience, endurance for these Thessalonian Christians. Uh, why? Because they're the two qualities that are essential for spiritual stability and the strength that the Thessalonians actually needed. Verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now, the strength of this statement is very plain and clear. It's not only a command, it was also made in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this is as strong as it gets. Okay, um, we command you in the name of Jesus. This is what he says that you withdraw. Paul defined the disorderly as those people who did not walk according to the traditions of Jesus Christ and the patterns and teaching of living according to the word of God. And that was what Paul and the apostles had given to them. Churches, let me just be clear on this, should never withdraw from someone because they failed to conform to man's traditions or teachings. The only standard to uphold is the apostolic tradition and teaching of the word of God. Now, what does it mean to withdraw from every brother? 
Paul had already told the Thessalonians to warn the unruly in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Now, apparently, after this warning, the problem is still remaining. Because remember, this is 2 Thessalonians. So now he tells them that they need to discipline the unruly ones in question. In other words, they try to do the right thing. They try to love them and teach them, but they were still continuing to do it. So he says, no, you need to now withdraw yourself. The purpose in withdrawing from people who are disobedient is not to, to punish them, but so that they can simply uh, basically be denied or, or so simply to deny uh, these disobedient people the aid and the comfort of the fellowship of the body of Christ until they repent. And, and if you, if they it, it put them out of the church and into the domain of Satan and the world in the hope that they might miss the fellowship of the church and that they would repent of their disobedience. Seems so harsh, doesn't it? But you have to understand they'd already been tried to be corrected. And, and what Paul says is, no, you can't have people in there that are unruly and just flagrantly saying, no, we will not do what God tells us to do inside the church we're talking about here. Okay. So he says, no, you've got to say to them, you can't fellowship here until you repent, say sorry, admit your sin and, and realize that you've been disobedient and then you can come back in and fellowship. Now, Paul echoed this same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and the purpose is to bring about repentance. The purpose is to get salvation to be true, and the purpose is for disobedient people to not be condemned or not be sent away without any care. It's to draw them to repentance, which draws them to Christ. And in an indirect way, Paul showed that his vision for the church was that it should be a place of love and comfort that one would feel genuinely sad and sorry to be excluded from. And, and I think churches today should also fit this description. Uh, that's, that's how loving they should be, that's, that, that somebody wants to come into obedience so that they can be there. Now, this is you have to understand the kind of obedience that he's talking about here. Um, he's talking about people who are disorderly, He's talking about people who uh, do not walk according to the traditions of the word of God. In other words, they're like, no, the Bible's not true. So you've got somebody in true in, in church saying, no, I don't believe the Bible. The Bible's a load of rubbish and I don't believe it. That's the kind of people he's talking about here. Okay. Now let's move on. Verse seven. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. And we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but work with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Uh, Paul was an excellent example among the Thessalonians. Why? Because he worked. He had his own job to support his needs. And it wasn't because apostles like Paul didn't have the right to request support, financial support, because of the ministry they were doing. No, it was because he wanted to set a good example of hard work and prove false any doc or accusation that he preached the message just for some personal financial gain. Um, so he's saying, therefore, the Thessalonians should follow Paul in his example of hard work and willingness to sacrifice. Why? For the furtherance and the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 10. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Simply put, Paul says that if anyone will not work, now he doesn't say cannot work. 
If somebody cannot work, it's our job as the church to be benevolent and provide for their needs. But if somebody says, I will not work, that's different. Because then Paul says, no, well then neither shall you eat. God's plan is to provide through our needs, through our work. That's no different than it was for Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. They had work to do, even though they're in a perfect state. God's plan for us, man, mankind, has always been to work and eat. Always. Now, he says, neither shall he eat. Since God, now, you have to understand, God is able to provide our needs in any way that he imagines. So, if he can do that, and then he says, neither shall he eat, then it means that something that he has chosen, for the most part, to meet our needs through work is eating. And that's because it's part of God's character. Uh, think about God. God's a busy God. God's always working. He's been at work since creation, and he's still working. Uh, God is an industrious God. Verse 11. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. The, the, this idleness of some had become a source of sin, uh, not only because of the work that they didn't do, but because of the harm they did do in their idle time, which was being busybodies. Okay, uh, And there's a bit of play on Greek words. If we go back to the original Greek here, there's a bit of a play on the words here uh, in the phrasing of the lines of not working at all, but are busybodies. And the, and the idea in the Greek is that busybodies are people who do no busyness. Okay, So when you do no busyness, business, then you become a busybody. Um, and perhaps these busybodies, which, by the way, I love that the fact that the busybody is a Bible word, so you can call somebody a busybody. Uh, um, perhaps these busybodies thought that if Jesus is coming back soon, remember, remember Second Thessalonians, all written because of misunderstanding of when Jesus was coming back, and they're like, well, if he's coming back soon, there's no point in working. Uh, then they, th they thought, well, maybe it doesn't make any sense to work, so we'll just stick our nose in other people's business. Um, it's easy for them to intrude into other people's lives when they're not doing anything themselves. And, what, and then they just took advantage of Christian generosity. Um, people still do that. Verse 12. Now those who are such, we command and exhort. There's that word again. We command and exhort. Now remember, exhort is like, I'm, I'm not just strongly encouraging you. I'm telling you this is what you need to do. That's what exhort means. Uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ, that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. With authority, through our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul commanded these busybodies to work, get out of the business of others, in other words, do it in quietness, and then provide for their own needs. Go and eat your own bread, instead of expecting other people and other Christians to provide bread for you. And, and now you have to understand, the early church did a great job at providing for the truly needy among them. But only after being certain that they were truly needy and after putting them to work for the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 3 to 16. You can read all about that. Verse 13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Oh, I love this. This was a very strong encouragement to those who were working as they should. Because... There's, there's not many things that can make you weary more than seeing others take advantage of your own generosity. 
But we should never let the manipulations of some discourage us from doing good to the truly needy. David Guzik. The older King James Version has this, be not weary in well-doing. There is plenty of well-wishing in the world, well-resolving, well-suggesting, and well-criticizing are also found in plenty. Many people are good at well-talking, but there is not enough of simple well-doing. Spurgeon, but well-doing consists in taking down the shutters and selling your goods, tucking up your shirt sleeves and doing a good day's work, sweeping the carpets and dusting the chairs, if you happen to be a domestic servant. Well-doing is attending to the duties that arise out of our relationships in life, attending carefully to them and seeing that in nothing we are eye servers and men pleasers, but in everything are seeking to serve God. There are many excuses that someone might make to allow weariness to come upon them as they're doing good, but all of them should be rejected. Um, here's some of the excuses. When, when people start to get weary in doing good, this is what, these are some of the things they start to say. But it just takes so much effort to keep doing good. Uh, it takes so much self-denial to keep doing good. It takes, uh, it, it brings persecution whenever I do good. Uh, people don't respond when I do good and, and the results are so small. Uh, it doesn't earn very much gratitude when I do good. <laughs> well, here's the, here's the but to every one of those statements. You will extend effort towards the things of the world. <laughs> so you're going to do effort to the things of this world. Well, why not, do eff- why not use your effort to the things of people who are needy? Um, when you say it takes so much self-denial, well, it, it, it's, it's totally worth it when you consider the reward of what God can do. It, it brings you persecution to do good. Well, your persecutions are nothing compared to what Jesus suffered. Uh, people don't respond. The results are little. Well, remember how slow you were to respond to Jesus Christ in the first place. It, I don't get much gratitude. Well, God yet still sends many blessings even to those who, who do not thank or appreciate him. See, This is the concept that Paul was trying to explain to them. And verse 14, he goes on, he says this, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Paul finished the thought. Introduced in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. And here he elaborates on what it means to withdraw from a brother as previously mentioned in this chapter. Now, he says, note that person and do not keep company with him. To withdraw means to note that person. It means to not keep company with him with the purpose of causing that person to be ashamed. But the purpose is not to make him an enemy of the church and it's not ashamed to you, it's ashamed to God. And it's through the severity of the withdrawal from fellowship that they are warned and then admonished as being somebody who is erring, somebody who is living their life 
uh, in mistake of God's word. Now again, we're talking about people who directly contradict the word of God as being true. Or they see a Bible verse and they say, no, that's just not for, that's not for me and that's not for the church and I don't believe it. That's, that's the kind of person that, he's, that, that Paul is talking about here. So let's get, how does Paul wrap up uh, this book of 2 Thessalonians? Verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself, oh, isn't this beautiful? Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Uh, let me just read to you what Spurgeon says about this verse. I want to call particular attention to the apostle's words in this place. He does not say, may the Lord of peace send his angel to give you peace. It were a great mercy if he did, and we might be as glad as Jacob was at Manaheim when the angels of God met him. He does not even say, may the Lord of peace send his minister to give you peace. If he did, we might be as happy as Abraham when Melchizedek refreshed him with bread and wine. He does not even say, may the Lord of peace at the communion table or in reading the word or in prayer or in some other sacred exercise give you peace. In all these we might will be as refreshed. But he says, the Lord of peace himself give you peace, as if he alone in his own person could give you peace, and as if his presence were the sole means of such a divine peace as he desires. Verse 17. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I Right. Paul always wrote some part of his epistle in his own handwriting, one to say it was really from him, but also for him to let the people know that he really cared for them and wanted to always write his uh, closing, heartfelt, grace-filled prayer for them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. For God, God uh, for Paul, God's grace was the beginning and the end of a Christian life. It's, and it's appropriate that this letter uh, and most of Paul's letters start with grace and they end with grace. Uh, G. Morgan, G. Campbell Morgan, there is the additional addition. I'll start again. There is the addition of one little word in this final benediction as compared with its form in the first epistle. In other words, if you go to the end of 1 Thessalonians, there's one word added that's different than the ending of 2 Thessalonians. It is the word all. Thus the apostle takes those whom he had been rebuking and correcting, and so reveals the greatness of his heart and his love. What do we observe? This chapter is a very clear directive on how people in the church should conduct themselves. But how many people actually do it? How many people live this way? Remember, we are meant to never grow weary in doing good. So if that's you today, be encouraged, but also be challenged because there's a command that you have. Do not grow weary in doing It doesn't mean try not to grow weary. It means don't. So if you're weary, stop it. <laughs> there you go, the reverse. Okay, you need to stop being weary. Now, where do you need to get your strength from? Jesus. I can do all things, Philippians 4, through Christ who strengthens me. So if you're like, I just can't keep doing it, that's because you're trying to do it in your own strength. The only way that you'll not 
grow weary is if you do it in the strength of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Never keep, never grow weary, never stop, always keep going. How? In grace. In grace. I love that. That's how we go. We go in grace. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that everybody would go in grace today. I pray, Lord, that the peace of God would be over them. The grace of God be extended to them. The mercy of God be revealed in their hearts. And the purposes of God be established in them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.